So during Eastertide, we encounter some pretty strange and wonderful stories. There are always these, and I'll put this in quotes, chance meetings with God, Jesus, right? They always are chance meetings. People are going about the mundane, you know, business of their lives, and they're only to be arrested and changed by God. So there's these stories of surprise and transformation of glory. I love that about, oops, is that me? Maybe that's me. We thought we fixed our little mic problem. We'll see. Um, I love these stories. They're some of my favorite stories in the, in the New Testament. Road to Emmaus. Heard about that. I think it was last week or week before. Great example of that. So today we're going to get a front row seat to God's missional heart and the rapid expansion of the gospel and the enlargening of the kingdom. It's the fulfillment of those words we heard last week in John 10 when Jesus said, basically, hey, my flock is not complete yet. So there are faces that are missing around this table, his table. There are empty seats here amongst us. So this is the powerful and the missional message of Acts, a book which, if you've been paying attention to the uh, lectionary readings, is really prominent at Eastertide. In fact, they replace the Old Testament readings. There's always these Acts readings during Eastertide every single week. Kind of cool. So Acts is full of these very strange and these wonderful stories. And today's passage about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, is no exception. It's another uh, unlikely story uh, with unlikely people meeting in unlikely places, brought to faith by unlikely means. God reveals himself. And lives are radically changed. So thankfully, our Lord specializes in the unlikely. The resurrection tells us that much. So Acts 8, 26 through 40. Now the good doctor, Luke, the apostle, he's more or less the uncontested author of Acts, right? And obviously of Luke, the gospel that bears his name. In, in fact, the short form uh, you're here, you'll hear bandied about is people say, Luke Acts, because they're meant to be read like a part one and part two. They're companion pieces. Uh, so if you've never done that experiment, I would encourage you read through Luke and go straight into Acts because they really are one story. There's a part one and a part two. Now Luke has this big heart for outsiders, the widow, the orphan, the alien, anybody who's different, disenfranchised. He loves to feature the outliers who didn't fit into Jewish or Roman society. He loves to do this. Now this makes sense. He's the only gospel author who isn't Jewish. So he has an eye for this. He's a really keen eye for the false barriers and obstacles that divide the body of Christ, whether that's age, whether that's tradition, whether that's race, ethnicity, culture, uh, physical condition or impairment, which is part of the case here. So in my opinion, boy, this makes him the perfect author for Acts, a book where this mighty river that we call uh, the gospel of Jesus, where it kind of jumps its Jewish banks and goes in all directions in surprising ways. So the abiding theme of Acts, we come upon very quickly. If we read through it, uh, Acts 1, I'm just going to encapsulate it. Jesus tells his followers, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the end, to the ends of the earth. Okay? In Acts 8, our passage, that's exactly what is happening. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. So the people in Acts 8, our passage, they aren't like the most familiar people to us. They're not the familiar cast of recurring characters. They're not the heavy hitters like the Apostle Peter uh, or the famous converts like Paul. Right? Um, if Acts were a film, uh, the eunuch and Philip would probably be listed as two supporting actors. But don't let that fool you. They couldn't be more important. 
which I hope will make sense as we go through this passage. So Philip, the evangelist, first one that we meet, not to confuse, not to be confused with Philip the apostle. So he's not one of the 12. That's, it's not that Philip. That's not what we're talking about. Philip the evangelist was one of the first seven deacons in the church. They were chosen back in Acts 6. You can go back and read that. He and Stephen, they're both mentioned by name, uh, which usually means they're prominent in some way. So he was one of the first deacons. Uh, they both were. Deacons in the early church were servants of the church and of the poor, and they served as like a bridge between the church and the world. Often true deacons today uh, in our tradition. So we're going to learn later in Acts that Philip had four daughters, and they were all prophetesses. That's a tongue twister. So that tells us there's a godly lineage there, right? And yes, women can and do prophesy in the scriptures. Another sermon, but they do. So he, there's a godly lineage there with Philip. Now, prior to our passage, here's what's been cooking with Philip. Uh, chaos and violence, okay? Philip had to flee from Jerusalem to Samaria. Samaria is far north, so he had to flee north because of the stoning of Stephen, right? His martyrdom and Saul's persecution. So things are very hot there, uh, and he flees. And he gets to Samaria, and he preaches the gospel. And he converts, we're told he converts many people to the faith. He actually healed people. Demons are cast out, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Things are happening there. So he saw God move powerfully in a very pagan place. And because of Philip, here's what Acts 8, 8, 8 says. There was much joy in that city. Beautiful. So to bring us to our passage, that's all backstory. Very important, though. So while in Samaria, he's there ministering, killing it. Uh, an angel of the Lord, another minor character in Acts who pops up here and there. He tells Philip, rise, get up, get in motion. Uh, go towards the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem from Gaza, which that's headed to uh, Africa. So this is divine command number one, two commands he receives in this passage. This is number one, okay? So uh, rise, go south on the road to Gaza. Now, I gotta be honest, I got two issues with this. <laughs> one, it's illogical, and two, it's very nondescript. So nondescript. This is not much to go on. So he's essentially saying, get on this road, go south to Gaza. And Gaza was like the last watering hole before you entered into the Egyptian desert. It reminds me of what God said to Abram, you know, leave your own country and go to the land I'll show you. Well, at least Philip gets a direction, go south. So it would be like God telling you, get in your car and get on I-85 and drive south. And that's what you get, like that's it. You don't, I mean, how far Lord? Is this like a day trip? Is this like a multiple day? Do I need to gas up the car? Should I get food? Uh, how far am I going? And of course the other is why? Why? There's a spiritual principle at work in Acts that happens again and again. And it is this. People are easier to direct once they're in motion. They're easier to steer once they're in motion. They're awful hard to steer when they're stationary. Some of God just gets people moving. So this, this command is nondescript. Get on this road and go south. That's all he gets. I also said it's illogical. Here's why I say that. To me, it makes zero sense to draw Philip away from these mass conversions, these healings, these things that are happening in Samaria. I mean, he's getting results. He's killing it. Ministry is happening. His ministry in Samaria brought joy to a pagan region. Why would you, you, know, why would you end a good thing? Why spoil a good thing? 
find out. Philip, thankfully, is not me, and he listens to the angel. He responds. It says he rose up and he went south. Now, up north, where he's starting out, Samaria down to Jerusalem, it's easy traveling. It's well paid. It's uh, really nice travel conditions, plenty of water. But after Gaza, when he goes further south, things change. <laughs> things are very underdeveloped. They're very rugged, and water becomes pretty scarce. So this is like rough backcountry terrain. That's how you need to see it. It's less of a road and more of like a wilderness trail. So he heads out on the frontier. And to his conception, to his mind, he is going to the ends of the earth. Because this is uncharted territory to a Jew of that day and age. Luke underscores how remote this is with his little tersa, you know. And this was a desert place. Okay. Those who know the region are like, yeah, it is. Duh. So God moves Philip from the comforts and plentiful resources and all the ministry that's going on in Samaria and Jerusalem and moves him into the rugged frontier south in the wilderness. Again, that makes no sense to me. Zero sense. Go to the Egyptian wilderness, uh, Philip. Head towards Africa, go south. Come on. To my mind, it makes no sense. But he responds. Thank God he does. As he travels, behold, some translations say, he stumbles upon the Ethiopian eunuch. He's our other main character. Behold, just telling us that, hey, he's surprised, which makes sense because you do not expect to come across anyone in this lonely desert road. This is in the sticks. Very unlikely, very odd, very odd. But our Lord loves to orchestrate the unlikely. Now to a, to a little Jewish boy from up north, okay, this man he meets is very impressive and exotic. He's African, okay, which means he had dark black skin. He was from a different ethnic group than Philip, the lighter skin Philip, I might add. So in this context, not to get into this too much, Ethiopia actually means modern-day Sudan. So it's, it's south of Egypt. Now to a Jew or a Roman of that day and age, this African came from these southern fringes of the inhabitable world civilized world. He does come from the ends of the earth to their conception. It's a very exotic land. It's a foreign land, a very unknown land, but a place that is rumored to have wealth uh, in terms of iron and gold. So mysterious to the Jewish mind, this place. So this African hailed from the ends of the earth, as far as they were concerned. We learn that this African man is a court official. So not only is he from this remote, exotic region, uh, he's a man of influence. He's, find out he's in charge of the king, queen's excuse me, treasury. So this tells us a few things about him. He's politically powerful. He's influence. He's from the upper echelon of society. He's probably wealthy. There's some textual clues here. Uh, he's in a chariot, for one, and he has at least one servant. So, long story short, he's a heavy hitter, and he has a modest entourage of servants. And then, here's some contrast. Here's Philip the Jewish commoner who's on foot. So he and Philip are from very different stations in life and culture. I want you to see that to begin with. Contrast, contrast. This man is also a eunuch, makes note of that. Now, that means a lot of things, but I think for what's most germane to this passage is this makes him a religious outsider in Jewish life. So he's forbidden to enter the temple as a eunuch. This is from Deuteronomy 23. This means he couldn't fully participate in Jewish worship. He probably had to keep to the court of Gentiles, which was outside the temple. It was like one of the outer courts. 
or to the synagogue. He was probably relegated to stay there. He wouldn't have been a candidate even for Jewish conversion, so he couldn't be a proselyte. So here's someone who has lingered on the edges of Judaism. He's a second-class citizen. He's neither here uh, nor there. So think of that. Imagine this. He is an outsider. He can't fully enter in. So there's a lot of barriers and a lot of differences between his reality and Philip's. They're very different. What could possibly bridge these cultural and religious gaps? Well, here's a good start. This African man is seeking God. Our passage tells us he's returning from Jerusalem. He went there to worship. And check this out. That journey for him to come from his own country to Jerusalem, four to five months, one way. So, that's some serious commitment. You think getting here on a Sunday on church is challenging? <laughs> think of that, right? So, um, his piety, I, I just it's striking to me. It's admirable. It's commendable. Despite all these barriers, despite not fitting into Jewish society, he's still seeking the Lord. He is what Luke would call a God-fearer. You'll see that phrase in Luke uh, in Acts. God-fearer, excuse me, Acts. Uh, same as Cornelius in Acts 10, which is coming up, but I don't want to go too far ahead. And all a God-fearer means is you're a non-Jew worshiping the Jewish God of the Old Covenant. That's what a God-fearer is. So that is this man. But he's spiritually homeless, not unlike others in our society and our culture. But we can see that the Lord has seeded the ground of his heart and he's drawing this man to himself. Divine command number two. Holy Spirit tells Philip, go get close to the chair. Stick close. So Philip runs. Notice he's eager. He doesn't mess around. He has to take some effort to do it. He runs and he's aside the chariot. And here's the African man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, the fact that this man owned a scroll just reminds us again like he is a man of means. He's wealthy. You, you did not, the scrolls weren't just floating about. He had to be wealthy or uh, has some connections to have that. Not many people own them. He's reading from Isaiah 53, a famous passage that prophesies about a suffering servant Messiah. Here's what it says. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, we know this to be about Jesus and the way he willfully laid down his glory and his power and the right to defend himself. We know it speaks of him suffering injustice and cruel humiliation. We know this is about his cross becoming our salvation. We know this. So God has led Philip to this desolate wilderness road for such a time as this. There's a lot that separates he and this African man. A ton. I mean, they're worlds apart. Worlds apart. But Philip doesn't let social conventions or ethnicity or any of these cultural differences stop him. He hears this African man reading Isaiah 53. And he responds. He does boldly. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Now, he is not... Uh, this isn't a casual thing. The text reads very emphatic. It's not like, hey man, what's up? No, it's not that. He's like, do you understand what you're reading? It's very intent and emphatic. And I love how the man responds. The African man says, how can I unless somebody guides me? How can I unless someone guides me? What a wonderful phrase. And it's far more accurate than saying, how can, how can I if someone explains it to me? Guides me is the best translation there. And it's an everyday term that means guiding someone from here to there. 
You might guide a blind person around. You might, uh, usually it's spoken of in the Old Testament as Moses or God guiding the Jews in the wilderness. How can I, if someone, without anyone to guide me? I love this. This is a posture of unashamed ignorance. Unashamed, right? No putting on mirrors. There's no pride. I, I don't understand. Can you help me? Speaks very well of this African unit. He's modest. He's humble enough to ask for help from this common stranger, or commoner stranger, no less. I find this so refreshing, so unusual. Just this humble acknowledgement of his need, right? He's hungry to know about the Lord. He's unafraid to ask for help. I'm ignorant. Can you help me? So this African man invites the Jewish stranger, commoner, to come on up in his chariot. Probably picking up these Jewish based off like clothes, accent, something like that. Come sit with me. Again, very odd, very out of the ordinary. Not common. And he says this, tell me please, so who is this prophet speaking of? Is he, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? I love this because he doesn't begin with this, hey, tell me what this passage means. That's not where he starts. He starts with this. Who is this passage about? Folks, that's the right question. I mean, that's a, I mean, Philip's got to go. This is a lob. And he's getting ready to crank it out there, which, of course, baseball wasn't invented, but you understand that. You understand. You can follow the metaphor. Who's this about? That's the right question. It's who, not what. This is about relationship, not just information. Now, I want us to note where this African man is getting hung up and confused because he is not the only one. This passage in Isaiah 53 is about the scandal of the cross, in a sense, a suffering Messiah. The Messiah's suffering was prophesied and necessary for glory and redemption to follow. This was an essential part of Jesus' identity that everybody gets tripped up on. How many times does Jesus, go read your post-resurrection accounts with Jesus, how many times does he have to reiterate this very thing? Rodumaeus, anyone? Over and over. You can't understand Jesus without his cross. He has to explain this again and again. And this was a stumbling block for the Jews, a crucified Messiah. And so Philip does just what we wanted to do, what we'd hope he would do. He tells them all about the who person of Jesus. And frustratingly to me, just like the Road to Emmaus story, we're told nothing about it other than he did it. It's like, oh, come on, man. I want some, I want some details. We don't know how he unpacked the scriptures. We don't know how he told him about Jesus and the gospel, but he does. But he does. And this African man responds with such eager joy. You know, see, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, how he knows about baptism, I have no clue. Maybe Philip talked to him about this. I don't know. And it just so happened, again, another chance thing. Here they are in the middle of this desolate desert road. And oh, look at that. There's some water. Again, the Lord orchestrating the unlikely. I love his request. Here's water. Well, what can prevent me from being baptized? This is a really beautiful request, a really powerful request. And here's why I say that. When you're baptized, you're initiated and engrafted into the covenant family. You're welcomed into the fellowship. Welcome to the family. Baptism, amongst other things, says that. So how noteworthy must have been for this man who's been excluded from full participation in Jewish life and worship? Because in this case, in the body of Christ, he's actually welcomed in. He's invited in. This 
follow me, God-fearing, black, Gentile, eunuch. Catch all that? He's baptized. And he is the first in the family of God in this regard. Later in Acts, that becomes the norm. But this is a big deal, folks. Such a big deal. And we see God's big open heart here for all people. Love it. So as soon as Philip and his African brother come up out of the water, Philip is whisked away, caught up in the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, very similar to the road to Emmaus. There's some great parallels between these stories. He's transported, uh, by the way, if you care about biblical geography, about 30 miles away to this little seacoast town called Azotus. And guess what he does? He continues to share the gospel. He continues to do it. And he keeps moving. He doesn't stop there. He tells us that he... Uh, moves up towards Caesarea, which is this big coastal city that's like 55 miles north. Here's what's cool. We jump forward to Acts 21, and it's some 20 years later, Philip is still there. He's still in Caesarea. His missionary work opens up the gospel work all along that whole coastal region, okay? Just by being faithful. And this African man went on his way rejoicing, which is a really familiar word if you read Acts. I wonder... I have to wonder, did it ever occur to him how fitting this Isaiah 53 passage was for him? That's why I say this. There's this one phrase from it. Who can speak of his, meaning Christ's descendants? Who can speak of Christ's descendants? The eunuch turns out to be one of those very descendants of Jesus. He's adopted as a son into the family of God. That is so good. So good. So this African man was a seed of the gospel in his home country. He's the first Gentile convert we stumble upon in Acts. Even though the sort of full endorsement of the Gentile project, I'll call it, doesn't really get rolling until mm, Acts 13. But he's the first. So under God's direction, Philip has laid some incredible groundwork. As it turns out, evangelism and pioneering aren't really all that different. Even though Paul has called the apostle to the Gentiles, it's true, Philip made landfall first. He's a forerunner. Even though he's unknown compared to people like Peter and Paul. Again, he's sort of that supporting actor. But he's still the father of the Gentile mission. I love that. Philip the deacon, which means a servant of the church in the world. And Philip the evangelist, which those titles make a lot more sense now, don't they? Let me give you some delicious irony for us in the Anglican church in North America. I can't go into the full story here. Ask me about after church if you don't know it. So our Anglican, African, meaning Rwandan actually, brothers and sisters, some two millennia later, they returned the favor here in America, bringing the gospel to our country, helping us evangelize and remission North America. Our African brothers and sisters, acting in faith and obedience to God's voice, just like Philip did, and at great cost to them, I should add. They paid to make that step. So I suspect the good Dr. Luke would love this full circle. I think he thinks this is cool. It's got mission and redemption written all over it. Okay, closing thoughts, here we go. Forgive the obvious, but I'm gonna restate it. Philip and the eunuch, they couldn't be more different, right? Two different cultures, two different social classes, two very different realities. They live in two very different worlds. Yet, God binds them together and says, you are brothers now because you're part of my family. I'm your father. That is the fruit of resurrection. And it's a miracle that is not this world. No human organization functions this way. Though plenty of human utopias promise it, 
have tried it and aspire to it only to fail. The gospel is for everyone. There are no outsiders to the gospel. Specifically, here's what I mean. I don't know about you, well, I know a lot of your stories. The majority of us here are not of Jewish descent that I know of. In New Testament language, we are Gentiles, okay? I'm a Gentile. I wasn't born into the Jewish family. I'm a Gentile. That means I was adopted in. I was engrafted in as a son. There are others who await that same adoption. That, hey, welcome to the family, right? Which only comes through a flesh and blood ambassador of Jesus like me and like you. That's how it comes. At some point, everyone who becomes a Christian was welcomed in by someone else. They told us about Jesus. So we all have our Phillips, right? Do you remember yours? Do you remember your Phillips? Who's your Philip? That's something to think about. We're called to be Phillips to others. It's my firm conviction that wherever you and I go, we carry the kingdom of God with us. We're Christ's ambassadors, wherever we happen to go. So the question is, who might you invite in? And who is the Holy Spirit prompting you uh, to speak to them of Christ? Here's my encouragement, which is the story of Acts. Uh, the Holy Spirit actively working in and through adversity. I mean, you see this in Acts, particularly the Holy Spirit working sometimes overtly, sometimes behind the scenes. But it's often just a mystery how God is weaving and orchestrating all of this together. Think of the tribulations and chaos of Philip's own life. He flees to Samaria because Stephen is killed and because Saul's persecution is uh, intense. This brought life to Samaria, right? The life and light of Jesus it brought there. If I was in charge, I would have been far more content with a safer choice and a lot less risk in doing that. I also, as I mentioned before, I wouldn't send Philip south on the desert road. He's killing it and has a fruitful ministry in Samaria. I wouldn't do that. Thankfully, God ordained it otherwise. He didn't consult me. That's good. So this should give us pause and I think give us some assurance in our journey to East Charlotte. Um, God ordaining our steps, the Holy Spirit actively and mysteriously working in and through the adversities we faced as a church this last year. We can rest in the fact that God's at work in and through us as we seek to follow his lead. We can rest in that. So adversity, uh, God turns that into something good. That's a specialty. Think of that story from Joseph, the end of Genesis. What God meant, what men meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Tribulation and chaos, God turns that He's the divine alchemist. He turns it into gold. We can, we can count on that. We can bank on that. I think that has a tremendous import when we think about East Charlotte and ending up there. Let me close with this. The ever-learned and wise Ashley Knoll says this. God's love takes us on journeys where we do not wish to go, makes us travel by roads we do not wish to use, to take us to places we never wish to leave. That again. God's love takes us on journeys where we do not wish to go, makes us travel by roads we do not wish to use, to take us to places we never wish to leave. And that's true of this story. And I'm going to add this to the end of it. To journey with people we would never wish to forget.